Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Energy Beat podcast. I'm your host, Jen Zaro, President and CEO of AESP. Today, I'm coming live from AESP's annual conference in New Orleans. This year's theme is doing everything differently. And so in the spirit of that, I'm taking the podcast out of the recording studio to take advantage of a rare opportunity. I've managed to book some time with Jordan Folks the Associate Director of Demand Flexibility at Opinion Dynamics. He's heavily involved in ASP's new revamped topic committees, which we just revealed at our opening general session. So welcome to the podcast, Jordan. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks. Like you said, I'm the Associate Director of Demand Flexibility at Opinion Dynamics. We do research and evaluation consulting for the energy industry, and we're really interested in anything related to sustainability in this industry. That historically has been a lot of energy efficiency work, but we're really excited for kind of the new frontier of energy. And my little area of domain is demand flexibility. So I was previously the topic chair of the pricing in DR, and now I'm shifting to the new resilience topic committee where I'll be serving as co-chair. And a lot of the topics that we tackled in the prior pricing and DR topic committee are going to find a new home in resilience, where we think about ways to make the grid more resilient and clearly demand response and demand flexibility is a really important part of that. Absolutely. I'm really excited to see what we're able to do with behavioral signals, with pricing especially, to help make the virtual power plant concept a reality in kind of smoothing out some of the grid's critical loads and resources. So tell me a little bit about differences that you see between demand response and demand flexibility. Sure. So I think demand flexibility is more of an umbrella term, right? And in fact, at the last ASP conference in Philadelphia, I talked a little bit about this in my session. And I think that we can really think of demand flexibility in four primary areas. We have what we like to say shape, shift, shed, and shimmy. And so demand response historically has been really a shed approach. We're just trying to take, you know, clip the peak and take load off of the system that would otherwise exist there. But demand response is also increasingly being looked to is a demand flexibility resource in the realm of shifting load. And smart thermostat programs in the residential sector are a great example where we're not really saving a ton of energy or demand. We're just shifting to when it happens and moving kind of beyond the demand response realm, which is really event focused. Uh, we get into kind of longer term, more higher frequency approaches like rates and pricing, for example, time of use rates. And that's a really good attempt to reshape the load to better align with cleaner sources of energy, mitigate the needs for peaker plants, so on and so forth. And then finally is shimmy. And that's kind of a technologically advanced thing that's happening at a really small, even like micro second level. And that's trying to rapidly kind of shimmy load around to kind of prevent increase too high of ramp times or or, or down ramp times. And we don't really talk too much about that at ASP because we're really focused on the customer here. Right. And so I think that our conversation today will probably be more focused on the first three, and we can leave the shimmying to the uh, engineers and the, the techno wizards that are more focused on that one. Ones that are really good at shimmying. <laughs> Excellent. Well, good. Well, that's exciting. And, I, you know, I think that's a question that I get a lot in the industry is they hear demand flexibility, they automatically think of demand response, but they don't really think about all the other ways you can flex your loads. And I know even in Hawaii, for instance, they've got programs at Hawaiian Electric Company where they're actually encouraging people to use 
certain types of resources like solar energy during the day because mm-hmm. that's when it's available and they're using that approach to balance the grid with specific applications like electric vehicles and air conditioning so or even um, cooling systems thermal thermal management so it's nice to hear that explanation of how demand flexibility is different from demand response but demand response is a component within the demand flexibility world i think that's exactly super helpful yeah and it's interesting this world we're moving into where we're going to start to hear things like solar curtailment or even, you know, encouraging people to use more energy at certain times to really soak up the sun and maximize the reliance on cleaner energy sources. And I think that's an important way to think about demand flexibility is it can go both up and down, left and right. Exactly. It's no longer just simple demand response. We're just trying to, like, cut a few hours off of the, uh, the load profile. It's like a big game of Twister. <laughs> right. So... Well, that's exciting, too, and I think it just demonstrates the advancements of the grid that we're moving into. So we talked a little bit about the technical elements of demand flexibility and demand response, but let's talk a little bit about equity as an issue related to this. And usually when you hear about diversity, equity, and inclusion in a conversation here at ASP and in the community, we're examining issues through maybe a program design lens, or we're talking about community engagement. But what about how equity is impacting or has the potential to impact demand response and behavioral response? And what does equity really mean in, in that context? Right. So there's a lot going on there. I think, for one, a lot of additional demand response or modern demand response is really technology-focused. And we're seeing wonderful load relief opportunities through things like smart thermostats. But we're kind of reminding ourselves of the classic energy efficiency dilemma of not everyone can necessarily afford the upfront investment associated with an energy efficient investment. Same for demand response enabling technologies. And so demand response is a bit of a double-edged sword in that regard because there are certain programs that require technologies like an electric vehicle that not everyone's going to necessarily have in their home, and we're going to see strong income correlations uh, related to access to these technologies. And so clearly there's potential for demand response to be inequitable um, and that the energy bill savings that the customer can accrue could be concentrated in higher income customer classes that don't necessarily need that help in their pocketbook. But there's a bright side because there are a lot of approaches in demand response that are truly behavioral that don't require enabling technology, it can be a really good opportunity to engage lower income populations. So let's talk more about that. So can you give me some examples of where we can reach out more equitably with these types of programs that are hitting populations that are currently underserved in the technology sector? Right. So I was lucky enough to be involved with the original California IOU time of use pilots. And this 2016 or so back then, they were thinking about transitioning customers to time of use rates. And I think rightfully so, there was a lot of concern over whether or not this would be exacerbating economic hardship amongst low-income customers, right? Because all of a sudden electricity is being transitioned to different times of day with really high-priced peak hours. And there was concern that low-income customers would have a dramatic impact to their bill. And additionally, that they would not be able to respond in the way of non-low-income customers, perhaps due to lack of enabling technologies, odd work schedules, um, senior, kind of more extended family home structures, et cetera. 
So the California IOUs did this huge pilot with tens of thousands of customers. And I actually was able to be a part of that study where we looked at an experimental survey approach to look at economic hardship. And we can always look at the bills and see, did people pay more on a ton of use rate? But, and that, that's fine. But what about the lived economic experience, right? Like, does that, does $10 more a month matter? And so that's what we wanted to explore. Right. So how is it affecting quality of life, right? At the end of the day, at ASP, we focus on people and the people experiences and how people are interacting with energy and how it's impacting their lives. So what did the people experience look like for people who were taking part in those time of use programs? And what were the outcomes that maybe made you think differently about those kinds of programs? So my background before coming to this industry was in environmental justice. And so I was really concerned about this issue. And I think that it was really smart of California to get ahead of this and make sure that it wasn't going to be a problem. And they offered bill protection. So you'd be you know, made whole if, in fact, you did pay more. And so our research actually revealed that time of use rates did not cause widespread economic disparities for low-income customers, senior citizens, people with uh, medical devices in the home. There were some isolated impacts uh, that we saw that were typically associated with more extreme uh, rate designs and more extreme climates. It was specifically the lowest income customers in the hottest climates in California could see a moderate lived economic experience impact from time of use rates. And so going forward, California actually decided to exempt low income customers from the default rate in the hottest climate zones because they, were, they just want to make sure that if these customers want to participate, that they can opt in instead. And so what we see was that, in fact, low-income customers were some of the best savers because they were really motivated to finally have an opportunity to save on their energy bill without having to install a new heat pump or something like that. And so uh, it turns out that a lot of the fears, while reasonably thought out, didn't come true. And in fact, they were able to uh, understand the materials and make a difference in their home and ultimately save energy. And so I think it's a great example of how rates and behavioral DR can actually enhance equity in this world because it's giving the low-income population an opportunity to participate in this new energy future, but it doesn't require them to whip out the checkbook first. Exactly. Quite the opposite. You know, really, if you think about it, you're empowering those customers who have the most likely highest energy burdens to take control of their spending on energy by responding to price signals in the market. So to me, I I would expect that outcome because I think there's some of our smartest customers when it comes to finding ways to save money. They're already struggling with bills. They're going to do what they can uh, to to make those bills lower. So that's an exciting finding. And I'm, I'm glad you've shared that with the world, too, to help perhaps encourage other utilities and other states to take advantage of those opportunities with behavioral price signals and, and demand response. An important caveat there is messaging is really important, right? And you have to prepare the customer for the transition. They have to understand what it is and how to um, best respond. And one thing we actually saw in that study uh, and subsequent studies have continued to prove this is that language can be a really big predictor of success. A lot of utilities have an opportunity to receive materials in the language of your preference. What we learned is that a lot of customers that don't speak English didn't realize that was an option. Wow. So they were the ones that were um, we were discovering through survey research were really struggling on this rate because they weren't able to understand the materials that were uh, supposed to alert them of how to succeed. If they had just known there was an option to get uh, materials in the preferred language in the first place, they would have been a lot better off. 
So it's really important to be on top of your messaging game because not only do you need to make sure that you're getting the message out there, but it needs to be culturally relevant and in the right language. So how did the state address that? Did they require multiple languages be used in messaging? California is really good about using multiple languages. However, I think that there is still work to be done to make sure that more people are opting in to the language you know, choice that would be most appropriate for their home. So kind of digging into that a little bit, what can we be doing more to ensure that we're actually using demand response, especially behavioral demand response and pricing to its full potential to not just help middle class and upper class customers, but to be helping all customers equitably? What, what more should we be thinking about or doing in our programs? Yeah, I mean, I think that as AMI continues to proliferate, it's really important that we move to more time-based pricing options. And part of that, and I, we've spoken about this before at these conferences, is a flat rate design where everyone pays the same amount is having to have appropriate and sufficient cost recovery across the entire rate class that's on that, right? And we know that peak year users are more expensive to serve. But they're paying the same price per kilowatt hour as a low-income customer that, you know, is barely using any energy at all and that they have a fairly flat demand profile. So a flat rate can have the effect of a low-income customer effectively subsidizing the energy costs for higher-income users. That's a problem. So I think that in terms of making this energy industry more equitable from the rate payer's perspective, we need to move to a more equitable rate structure that can make it so that you pay your fair share. And we know that low-income customers are paying more than they should in some places. So that's really interesting, Sue. In essence, you can be using those price signals and time of use rates designed appropriately to actually help meet some of the communities and the utilities and the state's own equity mm -hmm. objectives. And higher income customers might pay more. But, you know, it's a drop in the bucket. You know, if you have two swimming pools and, you know, this giant estate, time of use rates could cost more. But it's about time that people maybe pay their fair share. Well, and I think, too, it's important that we are considering as a metric of performance in these programs, the the energy burden calculation. So making sure that, you know, the energy burden as a percentage of income for a customer is being addressed in how well these programs are performing. Right. Yeah. Energy burden is a um, really big problem for low-income customers. I think that something, I think the ACEEE says that 6% is a problematic energy burden. And in our research, we routinely see energy burdens well above six for low-income populations. And obviously, energy efficiency is a good way to help lower that energy burden. But as we talked about earlier, that's a really challenging sector to serve. Split incentive issues, upfront costs, you name it. Well, and communication too, you said. So right. that seems also really critical. Um, so, so using pricing and other behavioral demand response techniques like peak time rebates, where it's truly all carrot. You know, if you are able to shed or shift some load, you get a bill credit. If you can't, it's okay. There's no penalty. Things like that can effectively lower that energy burden because they could, even without perhaps changing the energy use patterns whatsoever in a time of use sense, we see that low-income customers are more likely to be structural winners and that without changing their load profile, their energy use habits whatsoever, they can actually naturally save due to this more equitable rate structure, which could then in turn decrease their energy burden. As we start layering in things like peak time rebates, perhaps free smart thermostats, um, like places like Amarin, Illinois, 
have uh, experimented with and other mechanisms to help low-income customers be a part of this new demand flexibility journey that we're all on, we can even further lower the energy burden. Yeah, I'm hearing that obviously the, the thermostat's a huge opportunity and pretty reachable from a cost standpoint for the utility, especially to work with customers on. What about water heaters? Are there other loads that could be good additions for combining with a demand response or a pricing program to help a lower income customer achieve some savings? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that water heaters are a really hot topic right now, no pun intended. Um, the, the heat pump water heater is one thing that we're looking at as an industry, and it's a bit of a blessing and a curse when, we, when it comes to demand flexibility, because there are huge energy efficiency savings there, and it's also more likely to be internet connected and really be primed to be a demand flexibility resource. But if they're so energy efficient, all of a sudden there's less demand to push around. Mm. And so that being said, a low income household is probably not a very good target for a heat pump water heater at this time anyway. And so I think that we can go kind of old school and look at switches. Low income households are probably more likely to have a standard inefficient tank water heater with an electric element in it. And there are switch technologies which can you know, use this as effectively as like a battery in the home, and we can overheat and store water when you know prices are low. And when prices are high, then we can start to uh, stop the, the heating element and theoretically maintain customer comfort in terms of you know, hot shower ability uh, while saving them on their bill. And I know that there are um, utility programs out there experimenting with this. I believe SMUD is one of them. Um, I think it's called the Watt Saver Program. Yeah, that's right. And uh, it's really exciting about you know really having prices connected to devices and how we can continue to maintain a reasonable customer experience while providing great benefits, but also you know, economic benefits, especially those that need the most. And helping families have a better experience, right, with energy too. So more people can take hot showers at the times they need to. I think that's that's a win for everybody. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's wrap up with thinking about any pitfalls in the equity space that you've run into so far in applying demand response and and you know creative pricing strategies for underserved communities. What have you run into? We talked a little bit about the language barrier. Are there other issues or barriers that you're seeing to inhibit adoption? Hmm. You know, I think that one topic that people are really interested in pursuing is critical peak pricing. So earlier we talked a little bit about the carrot and peak time rebate and critical peak pricing is the exact opposite. It's a stick. So what if instead of providing a discount, if you're willing to shed or shift load during peak hours, instead there's a financial penalty. And I think that this really does make sense in CNI sectors. These large industrial customers are savvy and they know how to save money with these kind of strategies. But I think that the, from a customer messaging standpoint, it's a really tough sell. Smut again recently spoke about their um, smart thermostat pilot and they had a CPP component and they had very low adoption in terms of opt-in. And so I think that that's kind of something as an industry we're going to have to grapple with here is that although it seems to make sense from a, maybe a grid and planning perspective, I think customer adoption on the residential side is going to be challenging. But even if we could overcome that hump, it does worry me a bit from the uh, low income standpoint because there could be accidental bill shocks associated with CPP. So as the industry continues to kind of uh, toy around with that pricing mechanism in the residential sector, I do think that we should be careful with low-income populations, and maybe they're not the type of group that we want to automatically opt in or market that to, because 
I think there could be some concerns with the bill shocks for the occasional low investment on those rates. Do you think there's any impact in the relationship between the customer and the utility as far as that trusted advisor role and customers trusting the utility to sort of do the right thing by them? Is that a barrier? And if so, what can we do to try to work through that? It's interesting. Low-income customers have like the highest rated level of trust with utilities. We see that time and time again in our research at Opinion Dynamics. And they really do think that in the aggregate that the utility has their best interests at heart. And I think things like CPP could chip away at some of that trust that utilities have done a really great job garnering over the years. And so although they trust them, they don't necessarily think to reach out for help. We see really low rates of adoption of low-income energy efficiency programs. We see really low levels of awareness. Um, But when we ask them, where would you go for help? They always say the utility, but they're not reaching out. So I think that it speaks to the importance of being proactive and meeting them where they are. Work with community organizations that are actively working with these populations to help get them into programs that can help them. And when it comes to rates, if the regulatory environment allows it, automatically default or opt them automatically into the new rate, but just communicate with them and let them know if you don't like this, you can call us at any time and we can change your rate. But it's really important to leverage the wonderful trust that low-income populations have with their utility to um, you know, bring them even better services tomorrow. I love that. Flexibility with flexibility, <laughs> making sure they feel comfortable and that you're working with them. I think that's so, so important for people to hear. So given us a lot of really great information to think about uh, in the demand response and pricing space. Thank you for being with us today and with our podcast community. And I'm hopeful that we've sparked a few new ideas with our listeners and uh, can help them better leverage the potential of demand response and pricing for equity. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Jen.